This is the second episode in our mini-series on race and genetics and medicine. So if you're listening backwards, you may want to skip to the previous episode before listening to this one. In the last episode, we talked about race and genetics and explained why there is no strong genetic basis for racial differences. Now we will discuss racial disparities in medicine and why assumptions about how genetics contributes to racial differences can actually affect quality of care. Again, we said this in the last episode, but we'll repeat it here. Um, Although Emma and I have done extensive reading on this topic, we're certainly not claiming to be experts. Further, this issue is really complicated, and as we'll discuss, considering race can be both helpful and harmful in medicine depending on how it's applied. Finally, there's no way we could possibly cover all the ways that race affects health and medical care in a simple 20-minute podcast. However, we feel it's important to talk about race and how it impacts people in our own spheres of science and medicine. If you have questions about this episode or the previous one, we would love to engage with you more in conversation and would be open to doing more follow-up episodes about this topic in the future. Based on our discussion last time on how much of our genetic variation really doesn't boil down to race, it seems counterintuitive to think that race should be a factor in medical care. However, even though race is a social construct, it is a very real thing that impacts our health, and there can be benefits to considering race in treatment. How can considering race be helpful in healthcare? Well, for starters, one of the most clear ways that racial differences can manifest is through skin color. Yet, the instruction medical students receive on how to recognize basic skin-related symptoms, such as rashes, bruises, or blue lips, are defined by how these symptoms look on white skin over 75% of the time. This is clearly a problem because if future doctors do not receive training to identify key symptoms in patients with darker skin, they'll not be able to treat them effectively and could even miss certain conditions. A second-year black medical student Malone Mukwende published a book called Mind the Gap, a handbook of clinical science in black and brown skin, and he published this to help educate others about how common skin symptoms look on darker skin. A second point is that many risks and resources associated with health status and disease are also associated with race. In a 2011 qualitative focus group study of 40 black physicians and 50 white physicians, doctors were presented with a patient whose race was not defined that had type 2 diabetes and hypertension, and they were asked what information they would need to treat this patient. Then, after they gave their initial response, they were explicitly asked whether race was an important factor. Black physicians were more likely to believe that race and cultural differences could be important to quality of care, and they emphasized how important a role race played, especially in affordability and consistency of care. In comparison, white doctors were more likely to say that patients should be treated the same regardless of race. This kind of colorblind attitude of white physicians is problematic and reveals an utter failure in our medical education system, where physicians lack training in implicit bias and cultural awareness. However, most physicians pointed out that they thought family history was the most important factor to consider here, even if race could be a contributing factor. And this is important because we know that races are not a monolith, and just knowing a patient's race cannot substitute for asking specific questions to obtain key data. 
On the other side of the role of race in medicine, people point out that race is too often used as a shortcut to make decisions. Race-based assumptions and stereotyping can lead to discrimination in healthcare. So, for example, just consider the common myth that Black people experience less pain. Pain is obviously difficult to measure. There's no simple test you can run, so doctors have to rely on their own subjective assessment, which leaves a lot of room for implicit biases. In other words, attitudes or stereotypes that subconsciously or invisibly affect our actions and decisions. Are there any known physiological differences in pain tolerance? Yes, actually. Redheads have been shown to be more pain tolerant. So the MC1R gene, which is the most common gene that's mutated in redheads, is also involved in pain sensation. And they've mainly found this in females versus males. But studies in mice and humans with variants in MC1R showed that female mice and humans had a higher pain tolerance. And they hypothesize that this is because this gene interacts with the opioid system in some way. However, redheads are a rare case where there's a single strong genetic locus. And in the case of race, we know that genetics has little to do with it. And not all stereotypes are based in reality. Even though they don't intentionally treat their patients differently, stereotypes such as those that associate black people with substance abuse can contribute to doctors under-prescribing pain medicine to their black patients. Beliefs like this contribute to the fact that black Americans are systemically undertreated for pain compared to white Americans. Further, a phenomenon called in-group bias causes doctors to more easily be able to identify signs of pain in people that look physically like themselves, which also contributes to this implicit bias. A 2012 meta-analysis which analyzed 20 years worth of literature on administration of pain medicine revealed that black patients were 22% less likely to be given pain medication. It turns out that these societal stereotypes are rooted in false beliefs about physiology. A 2016 study by Kelly Hoffman and colleagues found that over 40% of first and second year medical students believe the following statement, that black people's skin is thicker than white people's skin. And there is no scientific evidence to support this claim. You may be wondering where the ridiculous notion that black people's skin is thicker than white people's skin even came from in the first place. This idea originated in the 1800s when a doctor named Thomas Hamilton began running experiments on John Brown, an enslaved man. What was the purpose of these experiments? Essentially, they were to justify slavery. Uh, Hamilton wanted to show that black people's skin was thicker or tougher so that that could be a way to explain why they were really better suited to field labor. He applied painful blisters to John Brown's skin every two weeks to try and determine how thick it was, and Hamilton's experiments went on for over nine months. Scientists at this time had all sorts of warped views about black bodies, some of which persist today. Going back to craniometry, which we mentioned in the previous episode, this field also was supposed to support slavery, since they hoped to show that black people had smaller brains by studying the size of their skulls. And another widely believed notion of the slavery age was that black people had weaker lungs. In fact, a doctor named Samuel Cartwright believed that black people had lower lung capacity and insisted that slavery and the intense physical labor that it entailed was actually beneficial to them to improve their health. He invented a medical device called the spirometer to prove this. A spirometer measures your lung capacity. You breathe into it and it measures the airflow. And this device that was invented in the slavery era 
to prove race differences is still used today. Essentially, all devices require that the operator input the patient's race and then adjust the measurements instantly using formulas that are often inaccessible to the operator of this spirometer. This practice of correcting for race doesn't stop with the spirometer. You may be surprised to learn that race stereotypes actually translate into differences in how doctors calculate expected physiological responses. For example, the estimated glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, is a measure of kidney function. An important factor in calculating the estimated GFR is muscle mass. And when individuals have higher muscle mass, this causes the production of more creatine in the body. Creatine is a key component in the formula for calculating the estimated GFR, and hence kidney function. Well, another race-based assumption is that black people have more muscle mass, so there's actually a race conversion when doctors calculate the estimated GFR rate for black people. Again, this is based on calculations that were determined with incredibly low numbers of people. I think the study involved just around 100 people. On a more positive note, there is a big campaign by medical students at the University of Wisconsin to eradicate the use of this race correction. As of June 1st this year, UW Medicine no longer considers race as a variable when calculating the estimated GFR and kidney function. Hopefully other hospitals will follow suit with this, and I did read that the National Kidney Foundation has established a task force to reassess including race as a precision variable when they calculate this estimated GFR. In her TED Talk, The Problem with Race-Based Medicine, sociology and law professor Dorothy Roberts points out how ridiculous this is. For something as simple as muscle mass, a physical characteristic that doesn't even require expensive testing to determine, why can't doctors use their eyes? Why would they use this muscle mass conversion for a lean black person, but not for a white bodybuilder? It makes no sense. And it shows that all too often, race is a bad proxy or substitute for real physiological, environmental, and social measurements. Beyond race-based physiological measurements, some companies have tried to develop race-specific drugs. The company NitroMed developed a drug called Bidil to treat heart disease. This drug originally failed in clinical trials of a multiracial group of individuals. The FDA recommended that NitroMed repeat the study along racial lines, and this time they saw a 43% decrease in mortality in black patients who took Bidil compared to placebo. Although they demonstrated an impressive improvement in this clinical study, the race claims were not explained. They did not identify any genetic or physiological markers linked to effectiveness of the drug. And it's disturbing that the group got such different results with a multiracial group versus an all-black cohort, raising the possibility that there could have been other factors besides race that confounded their results. Nevertheless, the FDA approved Bidil to be marketed specifically to black people. This marketing actually backfired as physicians were hesitant to prescribe a race-based drug, and patients were understandably suspicious and skeptical of taking a drug designed for black people, which had failed to show statistical significance in a clinical trial, including white people. Although it was predicted that the company NitroMed would generate anywhere from $500 million to $1 billion for this, um, this drug, a 2009 Securities and Exchange Commission report stated that the sales didn't even surpass $15 million annually in the first three years of marketing. 
Yes, and if any of you have watched the TV show House, they actually mention Bydil in one of the episodes where Dr. Foreman is prescribing medicine to a black patient. The man makes it clear that he does not want a prescription that's targeted to black people. Though this is just a TV show, it illustrates the distrust that many black people have in America for the medical system. And after hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis trials in our podcast, how could you not be wary of an all-black clinical trial? Also, how they classify race in this study and other studies leaves the door open to much confusion. In most studies, individuals self-identify their race, but what does this actually mean? Yes, if race is such a key variable, we need to do a better job at defining it. Often, there's no clarity over when race should indicate a person's social category or genetic ancestry. I mean, even on the 2020 census this year, you could identify your race really as anything you wanted. It didn't, they didn't have any classification of genetics or social aspects or anything. And as we discussed in the last episode, the social category has little to do with actual genetics. So for example, a person with one African-American parent and one white parent may be racialized as black, but genetically they harbor variants that may not be present in individuals with two African-American parents. And of course, if it's genetics we're interested in considering in medicine, we know that there is more genetic diversity within racial groups than between them. And by grouping people by social categories, instead of looking unbiased at their genetics, we could be missing out on very critical readouts of physiology. For instance, take the CYP genes. CYP genes are expressed in your liver and are very important for metabolizing drugs. Mutations in the CYP genes can cause differences in how individuals metabolize drugs. There was a 2016 study in Nature that looked at percentage of individuals with mutations in one of these specific CYP genes called CYP2D6. The study looked at mutations in this gene across different populations, which included European, East Asian, African American, among others. They found that a particular mutation called CYP2D6 asterisk 10 caused a decrease in CYP2D6 function, which was particularly prevalent in East Asian populations. 45% uh, that, that were looked at in the study had this allele. This has important implications for administrations of drugs that are metabolized by CYP2D6, such as codeine and antidepressants, especially when treating East Asian patients. However, only 20% of South Central Asian individuals had this mutation, so lumping these two groups together as Asian could be problematic. It's also important to note that the population they looked at were 42% European, 24% East Asian, and only 7% African American. Another caveat is that genetics is not the only factor that contributes to CYP function. We know that environmental factors can greatly impact its function too. For instance, eating grapefruit can decrease its function. And in contrast, alcohol and chronic smoking can activate certain CYP genes. Ultimately, the most responsible thing to do is to genotype the patient and ask about diet and lifestyle factors that could affect CYP2D6 function instead of relying on race. The fact that there's no genetic basis for race can get confusing when we consider something like sickle cell disease, which we talked about in the last podcast. To recap briefly, sickle cell disease is a genetic blood disorder caused by a mutation in the hemoglobin gene that causes red blood cells to be shaped like a sickle or a C-shape. 
These abnormally shaped red blood cells can cause clotting, intense pain, and organ damage. The CDC reports that the incidence per 1,000 births in the United States for black children is 73.1 versus only 3 for white children. And I just want to note that the CDC stated this, this data came from only 13 states, not all 50. However, the higher incidence of cases of sickle cell disease in black individuals is not intrinsic to their race, rather their geographical ancestry. The mutation in hemoglobin that causes sickle cell can also protect against malaria. And as we mentioned in the last podcast, in areas where malaria is present, there is selective evolutionary pressure for this mutation to remain in the gene pool because it protects people. And some of the areas where malaria is most present are the wet areas of Africa as well as regions in Greece and India. The presence of this mutation in black people in the United States has much more to do with the slave trade coming from those more wet regions of Africa where malaria was present than an individual's classification as black. And this shows that genetics and ancestry still has a place in medicine, but it's important that we are performing measurements of specific readouts that have been proven to affect disease progression and not assuming anything based on race. Yeah, but it's just like, I mean, doctors use race as a shortcut because some of the, some of the things that we are talking about, like if you want to genotype a patient, we have to admit that that costs money. So sometimes doctors will use race as a shortcut. It doesn't mean that that's right. Another dismaying reality is that race can lead to discrimination in healthcare because of implicit bias in computer programs. In a 2019 study that was published in Science, Zayed Obermeyer and his colleagues shocked the healthcare world. They analyzed a widely used hospital algorithm, which helps determine what kind of preventative care a patient should receive. What they found was that this algorithm was less likely to refer black patients to programs that would improve care compared to their equally sick white counterparts. Just how widely used is this algorithm, you might ask? The same article states that this algorithm is applied to about 200 million people in the United States. That's almost two-thirds of our total population. But why is this algorithm biased against black patients? Surely nobody set out to establish a system like that on purpose. No, of course not. Most of us understand that discrimination is wrong, and we don't aspire to it, obviously. But it doesn't change what Obermeyer found um, when the group ran what they thought would be a routine control test on these data. They had been given these data by a large hospital. So as we talked about in our How Science Works episodes, never underestimate the power of controls. They're so important. Through these control tests, the group found that black patients were being assigned a lower risk score than white patients that were equally sick. The risk score in this algorithm is important because it determines what kind of care programs patients should be enrolled in. It turns out the risk score is calculated by considering cost. How much money was required for this patient's care in the past year? In theory, assigning health risk based on cost makes sense. Because the sicker an individual is, the more money they'll be spending on health care. Further, when they looked at the average cost of treating their black patients compared to white patients, the overall average was similar. While on the surface this may seem fair, the black patients in this data set were actually sicker on average than the white patients. Ultimately, it was calculated that $1,800 less money per patient was being spent on black patients than on white patients with the same chronic illnesses. 
Of course, beyond this algorithm, we know that systemic racism contributes to differences in access to and usage of health care because of racial discrimination, distrust of the medical system, like in the case of the Tuskegee trials, and other factors. All of these factors lead to the system not spending as much money on black patients. But then when we use this cost-based algorithm to determine what kind of care a patient needs, we perpetuate this inequality. Thankfully, this study led to actual change. When Obermeyer and colleagues brought these results to the attention of Optum, which is the company that designed the algorithm, the company agreed to work together with Obermeyer to find a better and less biased system. By changing the algorithm to include predictions about future health conditions, they estimated that they could decrease the bias by 84%. However, these kinds of biased algorithms are surely pervasive in other areas of our society. Good intentions do not equal unbiased algorithms. The companies that design these algorithms should be required to run control tests like Obermeyer's group and collaborate with bioethicists. In addition, employing diverse engineers whose personal backgrounds might better reflect the populations they aim to serve would help to detect these potential biases and improve health equity. We've talked a lot about how involving race in medical decisions can be harmful. This is not to say it shouldn't be considered, but we really need to think carefully about what the actual societal, sociological, and environmental factors are that drive some of these differences. (laughs) 